Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Travel Squad Podcast. We adventure the world together, one passport stamp at a time. We're here to share travel news, tips, and our own adventures with you. Every Travel Tuesday, we share stories on a variety of topics, including our hometown, San Diego, hiking, weekenders, national parks, international getaways, and inspiring you to go on your own adventures, even if it starts with your own backyard. I'm Jamal. Brittany. And I'm Kim. And And we're we're the the Travel Travel Squad Squad Podcast. Podcast. So grab your ticket and your passport. And don't forget your travel insurance. And prepare for takeoff. Hello, fellow travelers. Hey, Hey, squaddies. Welcome to episode 106 of the Travel Squad podcast. Today, we're interviewing Lindsay, who's going to give us a local traveler's perspective of Spain. We were connected with Lindsay through the PR slash marketing podcast community, which is her profession by day. But as an American born and raised here in the States, she studied abroad in Spain and ended up meeting her husband in Spain and now lives there full time. And it's because of her unique insight living there as a student, now married and raising her family, that we're having her on here to give us that unique traveler's perspective and insider guide to Spain, the must-dos, must-sees and eats. Because you know the squad hasn't been there yet. I think we've mentioned this on the podcast several times. Why haven't we been to Spain? And this interview has really inspired us to go. Yeah, after this interview, I am pumped up to go. Lindsay's actually been living there almost 10 years now. And with all of that experience living there, in a northern small town of Spain, she was really able to give us that perspective that you only get when you've spent that much time there. Exactly where to go, the exact foods to eat, the cocktails to eat, the type of wine, how to order the wine. She gave us an insider look at what lunch in Spain is like. Spoiler, it comes with a jug of wine on your table. That's a good spoiler. (laughs) It's amazing. She also went into detail on the bathrooms for us. And another spoiler, it's not what I was expecting. Not at all. So with that, let's welcome Lindsay to the podcast. Hi, Lindsay. I know it's late in Spain there, but thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you guys for having me on. It's a good day to be on a podcast. It's always a good day to be on a podcast. So if it's all right with you, I'd like to just dive right in. I know that you're not originally from Spain, but you are living in Spain and you're quite the Spanish expert now. So tell us a little bit, how did you end up there? 
I started here with a study abroad program. So it was a year-long program, and I ended up doing it my senior year in college. And I ended up meeting my husband while I was studying abroad, and he's Spanish. And so through someone I had met here by coincidence on the Metro, she and I became friends, and he was part of her circle of friends, and so she introduced us. And then we started dating from then my time in Spain when like February, continued dating and did a long distance. And then I moved back in 2014 to teach English here. And the primary purpose was just to get a visa. And so I started teaching English and moved in with my then fiance. And then we ended up getting married the following year. And so we've been here since. Now I have a daughter and a dog to my name here in Spain. So pretty much we've now made a life here. That's amazing. I was going to say that's fantastic. An unintentional move to another country by meeting the love of your life. That's exciting stuff. But where in Spain do you guys live currently? We're in northern Spain. We're in the Basque country. We're in a small town called Leoa, and it's right on the outskirts of Bilbao, which is the capital of Vizcaya, one of the provinces within the Basque country. We're about an hour and a half from the French border and we touched the coast. So we're, we're about two miles from the beach right now. And is that where you did your study abroad program or did you guys move to that area? It is where I studied abroad. I'm probably a mile from where I lived when I studied abroad. That was kind of also not necessarily intentional, but my husband's family does live here. Um, He's Spanish military, and so we've been really, really fortunate that he hasn't had to move anywhere else. So yeah, he got stationed here, and I was lucky enough to also get sent back here for my teaching program. So there was a lot of of coincidences that may not be coincidences, Mm -hmm. but it all worked out in our favor. And how long was your study abroad program? How long were you in Spain? Well, it was one year. It was August until May, and then I stayed the rest of the summer because I obviously I loved it so much. I had to stay. Now, just real quick, because obviously, you know, we're going to talk more about your experience in Spain, giving us the lowdown. I mean, all of us, as much traveling as we've done, we have not been to Spain yet, which when we think about it to ourselves, it genuinely shocks us. Like, how have we not gone to Spain, done anything about that? So I'm really excited to dive in. But before you moved there, got married, What brought you to the study abroad in that location where you're at? Because when I think of Spain study abroad, I'm probably thinking like Madrid, Barcelona, maybe somewhere along the Mediterranean southern coast area like Valencia. So why in that northern region, which, again, haven't done much in Spain, but seems very unsuspecting of a place to go? So the Basque country has a connection with Boise. Boise has a big Basque community. And so growing up in high school, I studied Spanish as well. And uh, a lot of my teachers in high school had family from the Basque country. So we studied Castilian Spanish. And so for me, that's kind of where the interest began in heading to Spain. And then when I got to Chico State, Chico State's study abroad program is very, very extensive and well known. And I started looking at the different programs that were offered. And one of the options was Bilbao. And another was San Sebastian, which is also the two places in the Basque country I could go. So I thought, well, if I want to go somewhere, I want to go somewhere where they're going to speak Spanish. So for me, Madrid and Barcelona were out because they're so big. They're huge cities. And if you want to learn Spanish, like it would be really easy if you were to go to a big city like that for someone to speak to you in English because they want to practice as much as you want to practice. So 
I wanted to make it intentional and I wanted to be somewhere a little bit smaller because for me, I was also not that comfortable in being in a huge metropolitan city. I didn't really know what that would look like. I did not check out the weather though. And so up here in the North, it is Seattle. Like it is the Seattle of Europe. So (laughs) I had no idea when I got here what the weather was going to be like. I think it rains even just a little bit more than Seattle. So That was definitely, I was not expecting that. But that was the connection, the Boise connection, the Spanish that I wanted to practice, and just a smaller place than, you know, metropolitan. That's such a little interesting tidbit that you gave about the Spanish population that's out there in Boise, Idaho, where you're from. I did not know that. And you answered the question that I had was when you said you were learning Spanish over there growing up, if it was actually Spanish, Spanish from Europe, because here in California for us, you know, we're taught Latin American Spanish. And obviously it's the same, but it's different at the same time. So that's very interesting in other parts of the U.S. that you're learning European Spanish, Spanish. I mean, I look back on it and I think all of the times that I thought, I don't want to learn the vosotros tense. Because, you know, you have like, yo, tu, el, ella, nosotros, and vosotros, which is for Spain. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, man, this is such, this is an extra one. Like, I do not need to be learning this right now. And I'm so glad I did because that is all, like, that is the you guys of Spanish here. So whenever you want to say you guys, like, that is it. And they use it all the time here. So I'm so glad that my teachers were on me back in high school to, to learn that tense. So. Do you remember how much the study abroad program cost approximately? Because that's really interesting. And I think like a lot of times people are always interested in going abroad, but sometimes money is a factor. And one of our goals of our podcast is to show how affordable travel can be at times and to live there and, you know, one, get an education out of it. And then two, live somewhere abroad. I'm not sure what it costs you, but it's definitely worth the experience, I'm sure. Well, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm very, very privileged, and my parents paid for my entire study abroad program. I can't even give you that number. I'm I'm so sorry. I am so fortunate that I did have the opportunity. I do know that in terms of the cost of a homestay versus the cost of uh, living in an apartment with other students, the option to live with other program students was less expensive. And so that is the option that I did. Um, So I lived with other American students that were studying abroad. I know Chico State had thousands of scholarships available for students, and that was something that you could take advantage of. I think a lot of times, too, besides the financial piece, the piece of how do you make it work with your major or your degree, that's always something that people you know, struggle with. And they were always looking for ways. The Bilbao program was business-oriented, and so you could take essentially a five to ten classes of just straight business while you were here. And so that was you know, an opportunity to get credits toward your actual degree. For me, my degree is in journalism, and then I was minoring at the time in Spanish. And so for me, it was like, well, I just overloaded on Spanish. I wasn't necessarily looking for any other credits, but looking to make it fit with your major. I know certain programs are designed, say you're studying biology, like if you were to go to somewhere like Costa Rica, and maybe you do some marine study, they do like to incorporate internship opportunities. And so that's also something that you can take advantage of. I did um, a publishing house that I interned at, and they worked with the Harvard Business Review. And so I got to work with them on translations for some of their online content. I mean, there's such cool opportunities that come from study abroad. That is really cool. And I'm glad that you mentioned the scholarships because I don't think a lot of people are aware that those exist and that you can use them for studying abroad. And we like to talk about how travel can change your life, you know, your perspective, how creative you feel. 
refresh you, but it literally changed your life like completely. That's really cool. So you're still in this smaller town area of Spain. How does that compare price wise to a place like Madrid or Barcelona? Cost of living, cost of food, perhaps? I think it depends where in the city that you're living. I mean, if you're living in the center of Bilbao, the pricing will be much more significant than where I'm at right now. So like, I'm trying to think of how to give you an example, like housing prices for a piso. So for a flat, like you're looking at the area that I'm in at like 400,000 for a flat, which is probably the equivalent of 900 square feet, two beds, one bath. Space is very limited compared Mm -hmm. to what you might be getting in the States. Cost of living though, what I always say to people is to have a good time here, it does not cost you much. So especially when you're looking at it from a place of travel, like to eat and drink in Spain, you are going to eat the best you've eaten, you're going to drink the best you've ever drank for so little. Like we're talking when you go out in Madrid, you go get a menu del dia, which is a three course meal for your lunch. And that's the big meal here is lunch. You know, you do dinner very light here. It's all Mm, about lunch. I like that. And so it's the three course meal. I would say here in Bilbao, you could get a good three-course meal. We just went yesterday for 15 euro. And that includes the wine or beer. That includes your bread. That includes your first dish, which might be like patatas a la riojana, which is like a potato chorizo stew. And then Mm. you have like the second dish is usually your fish or your red meat. So you'd have like a filet or you'd have, you know, fish is really big here because we're right on the coast. So they eat a lot of halibut and a fish called hake. And then you get the dessert as well. And Mm. like we're talking a half a bottle of wine to a bottle of wine. They just bring it to your table. And that's all, you know, 15 euros maybe. If you were in Madrid and you were in maybe a tourist area like the Plaza Mayor or the Puerto del Sol, you're going to pay more. But if you went one street off from those main plazas, you're looking at the 15 euro, you're looking at the 9 euro menu del dia. So That's really awesome to hear you say that because that's one of the things that I've really read and heard about travel in Spain. And even though it's on the euro and you go to other countries and even though they're using the same currency, a lot of things like you're describing are a lot more expensive. So maybe, okay, housing is expensive in Spain, but like you said, good time, your meals, your activities, your euros go a lot farther in Spain than other countries that utilize the euro also. So it's really awesome to hear you say and validate that. And it makes me even more so want to go to Spain soon. And our healthcare is obviously covered as well. We don't pay a dime in healthcare costs. So when you look at the cost of living, I had some medical stuff going on last year and you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, there's no bill that's arriving at your door. So that's another thing besides obviously you're being taxed on it um, and taxes are a little bit higher here than in the States, but that's something that doesn't come out of pocket. What comes into your account every month in the form of his salary, it's you know, there aren't as many unexpecteds that you're, you're not sure what's about to happen. So when you go to the doctor in Spain, you know, in the US, you have to pay a copay, and then you get your insurance bill at the end. There's no copay either. Wow. I think I paid for my pregnancy. I paid 89 cents for a cup that I had to pee in for a urine test. Oh my God. (laughs) That's unheard of. Even in the States, that urine test is going to be like probably a hundred plus dollars. Crazy. Well, she didn't even pay for the cup. She paid for the cup. I yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's it. I paid for. I literally, I paid for the cup. I paid for the plastic cup. 
And I mean, I had tests run last year. I had a CAT scan and I had a bunch of blood work. Like you're thinking in the States, they run that up significantly, the costs of any work you get done and nothing, zero. So (laughs) it's definitely something that when things are good and you have your health, like you don't really think about it. It's not going to be the same healthcare that you're getting in the United States. So when you go to the doctor, I've been to the doctor in the States plenty. There's is more handholding and it may be a nicer experience. Like sometimes there are things that happen where I think like, oh, this would never happen in the States. But I also think, but I would never be getting this for the cost or lack of cost that I'm getting it for here. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting perspective, especially since I work in healthcare myself. And so one of the things I always hear about healthcare when there's like universal healthcare, you know, it's a different experience or you might not get the treatment right away. Like you may have to wait for longer. And I think that's a a big stereotype. Have you felt like you have had to wait longer periods of time to get seen? Or do you feel like it's been pretty quick when you make an appointment? It depends on what you're seeing the doctor for. So like they have different categories. So like if it's something that they deem as urgent, you're going to get in the next day. Like where if it's something that's not as significant, I'm not sure how else to describe it, but if it's, if they don't deem it as significant, then you would have to wait a little bit longer. So for example, my father-in-law, he pulled something in his knee and he had to wait like four months for an appointment. Whereas I'm trying to think of when I've had issues, like I had a kidney stone. And so like I went in with severe pain and immediately they sent me to get a CAT scan. And so like the process began immediately. So I think it depends on the scale of what's happening to you. And with COVID too, things have been slowed down significantly, I will say that. So for appointments, I mean, I remember last year making an appointment for the gastroenterologist and I had to wait three months or four months. So it was, there was a wait, but. There's been a lot of slowdown in the U.S. too because of COVID for non-life-threatening things. So it's everywhere. I don't think it's just within the healthcare system in Spain. I think everybody in the world is uh reeling with that issue right now. But I'm glad we got a little bit of background perspective on you, how you got there, your time in Spain. But I really want to take this portion of the interview here for you to tell us more about Spain, traveling through it, the big cities, the must-dos, things like that. So what would you say, like, as a first-time traveler for us, because we're talking about coming to Spain soon, like, what are the must-dos? Where should we go? Time allocation, et cetera. So I was, I was thinking about this in terms of time. I think if you're going to be coming to Europe and the only country you're going to be visiting is Spain, if that's the case, you need at least a week. You need a solid week because in terms of moving around, especially if you want to do major cities, so like Madrid and Barcelona. For me, like if you're a first timer coming to Spain and you want, you know, big city and kind of a big experience, it would be Madrid and Barcelona. I will say that my preference is Madrid. If you're looking for like traditional Spain and kind of like those little side streets and plazas and if you've ever been to Rome. So I love Rome. I love Madrid. They've got kind of this same vibe. And, you know, you can be in a huge city like Madrid, but it feels small when you're on these side streets. So if you can get to Madrid and say you don't want to make the Barcelona trip, Next to Madrid, you have Toledo and Segovia, which are two quick hops. You can take the train from Madrid into Toledo, and it's about 45 minutes. 
And it's this beautiful, I mean, I don't even know how many thousands of years old it is. And it has a military fort, it has a cathedral, it has quite the background, like it's had like Judaism, Catholicism, and the Muslim faith, it's been reigned by all at some point. So there's touches of all of that, whether it's in the architecture or the food. And then Segovia is known for its like Roman aqueducts. And they're also known for cochinillo, which is like a suckling pig. But it's so tender if you get the opportunity to try it. (laughs) And that's about, I think it's a little bit further. So you might have to rent a car for Segovia. But I'm sure if you were with a tour, it's about an hour and a half, I think, from Madrid. So if you did those, I mean, you're in Madrid, say three days. You do Toledo for the day. You do Segovia for the day. If you wanted to make it over to Barcelona, Barcelona is known for Gaudí, who is an architect. And so he has all of his houses that he designed there. And when you think about design, he's kind of like Alice in Wonderland for me. So like he designed the Sagrada Familia, which is the cathedral there that's still in construction. But all of it is very kind of, I don't know about psychedelic, but it's the design is so crazy. It's it's a must-see. The house that I would say you have to go to is called Casa Batio, B-A-T-L-L-O with an accent at the end. And I went there a couple times. I went to Barcelona and I thought, oh, I'm not going to spend the money to go and tour this house. From the outside, because the exterior is so impressive, it's mosaic on the outside and it has kind of these skeleton faces on the balconies and this dragon on the top. And it stands out from all the other buildings that are obviously on the street. And I finally made the choice to go in, did the tour, and it was so worth, I think it was like 18 euros at the time, but it was so worth that 18 euros. When I was younger in college, I was like, oh, I don't want to spend that. But no, if you're going there, you have to go tour the house, you know, get the audio or get a guide because it is worth knowing about the history. And in summer they do, I think it's called like rooftop nights. And Mm. so you do the full tour, but it's at night. And then at the top, they have live music and you get two drinks. So they have like, they have like champagne and a concert. So they do that. I think it's in July and August. With COVID, I'm not sure how that is right now. But yeah, that's definitely a must too. You said rooftop bar and you sold me on that one. <laughs> it Kim is always about the rooftop bar. But in terms of the big cities and things to do over in that region, we went over that. What would you say is like a hidden region or place in Spain that most tourists don't even know about? So a, a real hidden gym that you would say is a, a for sure must do, even if you kind of have to go out of your way if time allows. Uh, And is this within the big city or is this getting out of the big city? Could be anywhere within Spain, just a hidden gym within Spain that should be visited, but people don't really take into consideration. There's a place called Peniscola and it's over near Valencia. It's on the coast and it's got a beautiful beach. It's on the Mediterranean. So when you think Mediterranean, it's like all of the buildings are these just white. It's almost like kind of gives like a Greece vibe. But it's like all these white buildings, the full view of the beach. And it's a smaller beach. And really, if you're going there, you're going there to lay on the beach. There's no real rooftop bars, but it's all just beachside bars, which are equally, I think, as good. And um, yeah, so that's definitely worth a trip. And you can do that. So if you were to do Peniscula, you might just go up the coast. We did, my husband and I did a trip where we went to Valencia. So we took the high-speed train from Madrid over to Valencia, and then we went up the coast and just took the train to Peniscula, and then we took it all the way up to Barcelona and stopped there. I've heard that San Sebastian is a really cool place in Spain. What do you think about that? 
Oh, it is. It definitely is. Yeah. If I didn't say Finnish Kula, I should have said San Sebastian. <laughs> uh, no, San Sebastian is beautiful. It's right near France. It's got a beautiful beach, great for walking. And the old town, the Casco Viejo there is very picturesque. It's very European. Here in the Basque Country, they do pinchos instead of tapas. So pincho is like a piece of bread with something on the top of it. So it might be a croqueta or it might be jamón with the ham or they love sardines here. So like lots of <laughs> sardines, but that goes on the top. And so people eat pinchos here. And the difference between the tapa and the pincho is that in like Madrid, you would get a plate of tapas with a drink and maybe like at dinner time or whatever, or even throughout the day. Whereas here in the Basque Country, you're going to pay for the pincho. Like you have to each pincho, like you pay for the pincho. So when you go to the bars, if you were to come up here to the north, that's something to be aware of. That's interesting. So their version is almost like crostinis in a way. You have the bread and then whatever you put on top of it. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming in and seeing like they eat something called gulas here, which are like baby eels. And it was with, you know, the piece of bread with the what looked like tiny little worms on the top. And I was like, what mm. is that? <laughs> They're not, I mean, it's kind of like imitation crab, you know, like it's not the real eel because if it is, it's like, you know, like caviar. It's very, you know, high end. But yeah, that's one of the things that they love to eat up here. And, and the bars too, in terms of the pinchos with COVID, they've gotten a lot better. They didn't used to have anything to kind of protect the bar area. So it was just open. And now they all have like, you know, the glass that protects the pincho. So that also makes everybody feel great. <laughs> I'm glad you kind of transitioned this conversation to food because we always love to hit on the food. That's one of my favorite things about traveling is trying the local cuisine. So, I mean, you kind of touched a little bit on the tapas, the pinchos, but what would you say is a must try food for anybody coming to Spain, particularly? Like, well, what are they known for for breakfast? I know you kind of already described the lunch, but what should we truly be eating? Even if it's tapas, what specifically within the tapas should we be looking for? I mean, I would say pulpo, which is octopus. Like if you can get a good pulpo gallego, which is like a Galician octopus dish, it's served over potatoes, thinly sliced. It has like a little bit of paprika on the top with heavy sea salt and olive oil. Always olive oil, like everywhere you go. That sounds so good to me. I love octopus. So this is like right up my alley. As you're talking about all this stuff, I'm worried about Kim's experience in Spain. Kim is not a seafood person. And I feel like you just keep mentioning seafood. I know there's a lot I more know. to it than that, but... There is. There is a lot more. So actually, it's really interesting because we went to a wedding not too... Well, it was a little while ago now after since COVID. But her husband is from Galicia. So like seafood, octopus... And she's from Toledo, right outside of Madrid. So it's like land, cattle, there's no seafood in sight. So at their wedding, they combined the two types of food. And so they had a bunch of ham, which cured meats here are huge. I mean, morcilla is blood sausage, which people sometimes are a little hesitant to eat. But that's a traditional dish that if you don't think about it that much, it tastes wonderful. I just don't tend to eat it. But that is definitely a meat choice. The cured ham, like if you like charcuterie boards, Spain is the place to be mm. because it's not a charcuterie board. It is just a spread. Like it is all ham all manchego cheese, like harder style cheeses. I will say this, like if you're looking for beef, the only place really to go get really good beef, I feel like is go to the States or go to, you know, to Japan for the Wagyu or something like that. But Spain, if you're looking for the cured ham, this is a great place to get it. If you like prosciutto, like from Italy here, it would be called the pata negra, 
which is like a black-footed pig, and that they only eat acorns, so it makes the ham like very, very good. So if you're looking for that, I know I was going to go back to talking about fish, but <laughs> like squid. No, you can continue with the fish. I want to hear. I was just making the comment that you know Kim doesn't like seafood. I don't know if she's going to enjoy Spain too much, but obviously I know there's more. But please continue with whatever you should be eating when we're out there. I will say, I mean, talking about just fish or meat, like if you are a vegan coming to Spain, you will not have a good time. I can say that because it is, I mean, people do not cater to vegan food. They kind of look at you. I remember people who I was studying abroad with who had asked, can you make that vegan? And people looked at them like they were aliens. Like people here don't understand. Like vegan, what is that? Even vegetarian is kind of, they're not so sure about that either. Like, no, no, you eat you eat the jamon. Like you eat, you eat the fish, you eat the meat. But yeah, squid is another one they make. It's called chipirones in su tinta. And chipirones, it's like, it's the squid. And then they serve it with a puree. And it, they use like ink from the squid, which really doesn't do anything except give the puree color. And it's like a mix of peppers, tomato, and it's a sauce that goes on the side. So that's another popular one. Here in the north, bacalao pilpil, which is cod. And it's kind of like a saltier kind of cod. It's, another one is bacalao a la bilbaina, which is the bacalao from Bilbao. And that's like pepper sauce that goes on the side of the fish dish. So, And another thing too, if you're going to bars up you know, on the Mediterranean or in the north, on the weekends they do something called rabas. So it would be like the closest thing to like a fried calamari in the States. And mm. it's like, they're like little rings and their rabas, R-A-B-A-S. And it's fried, it's yummy. It's like great to go with a beer. So what you're describing really sounds a lot like to have in restaurants. One of my favorite things really about traveling internationally is the street food scene. You're an American by birth. You know there's not really a whole big street food scene in the United States unless you're in a place like maybe New York, right? So what, if any, are types of street food that we can come across in Spain? I imagine maybe more so in the big cities like Barcelona, Madrid, maybe not in the smallest, but is there anything like that street food-wise or is it all more restaurant-oriented and that's the culture of Spain? I mean, I would say it's bar food is what you're getting. And it, it's not like when you go to eat here, people will go in between their lunch break, like in mid morning and go into the I say bar, but it's literally it's like a small restaurant, but it serves alcohol all hours of the day because it's Spain. <laughs> so I mean, you go in and they always have like tortilla de patata, which is like a Spanish omelet and it has egg and a little bit of onion and a little bit of potato. Almost any bar you go to wherever you are in Spain will have tortilla de patata. And so you could get that. Street food, I can't, I'm not really even thinking because that's the other thing. People do not eat while they're in motion. <laughs> that sounds mm. crazy, but like they sit down, whether it's to drink something or to eat something, like to go coffee. That was something that started happening with COVID because people couldn't be out. And wow. so they would start to do this to go thing. I was like, wow, this is great. Like people are walking around with their coffee because it was the only thing that we could go out and get. But people generally, they sit down to eat. So street food is kind of, you don't really see that. Wow, that's really interesting. You had a really great list of foods to eat and it's really made me hungry. But every time you've also said like, well, and this is great to have a beer or you get like wine. So what are some of the drinks that you should try in Spain? What's the best wine in the region? Is there like a national drink? Can you give us any insight on that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it depends if you're a white wine drinker, red wine drinker. Um, red wine. 
red wine. So like if you were to go to and order a crianza, which is from the area La Rioja, it's a wine region, one of the wine regions in Spain. It's just south of us. And a crianza is a good one. And then depending on the type of crianza that you want, like you can get it to be in barrel longer or shorter. So like if you were to go for the Gran Reserva, it's been barreled the longest, it's been bottled the longest. So that's one. Um, And then for white wine, if you like white wine, like a Chacolí is known here in the Basque Country. And it's a little bit sweeter, but like that's definitely a traditional wine here. The wines are known based on the river that vineyard is near. So another area that's known for its wine is from Ribera del Duero, which is kind of near Madrid area. But if you ordered, if you said, I want a wine from La Rioja, or I want a wine from Ribera del Duero, you could get somebody to give you, you know, a wine from that area. And you could, you can't really go wrong here. Another, a white wine too, if you order a Rueda, R-E-U-D-A. That's another one that's a little drier if you like white, but don't want it as sweet. They also do cider here. So Asturias, which is just west of us, that's another province and they do cider and they pour the little bit, they pull it like way above their head, you drink like a little glass quickly and you know that's something you can get to drink. Cocktails, Cuba Libre is rum and coke. So if you like a rum and coke, it's called a Cuba Libre. Agua de Valencia is another cocktail from Valencia. It's with like orange juice and I think it's vodka and maybe some triple sec. Anyway, it's a, another good cocktail. Um, I'm trying to think if I have any others. I mean, I like to drink. So Oh, and a gin and tonic here in Spain. Gin, I know, like this is, I'm not making myself look good here. A gin, a gin and tonic, but here they call them a gin tonic. So they cut the and out. You order a gin tonic. And it comes in like a fishbowl. So like they just put the ice in and then they just pour, 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 pour. And then... <laughs> That's awesome. Well, don't feel bad when Brittany was saying that the food was making her feel hungry. You, as you were talking about drinks, have been making me thirsty and not for water, if you know what I mean. So no judgment on our end over here. But I kind of want to back it up a little bit before we kind of moved on to the wine and the drinks. You had mentioned something very interesting about the food that I always see when I go to Europe and other countries is that... They take their food and personal enjoyment and time to have the meals. Like you said, there was nothing really to go, no to-go coffee, and it's more kind of like relaxed, which had me thinking of a question about culture. We always hear about the siestas in Spain. They stop everything like midday. If somebody's coming as a traveler, I mean, can they really expect like, hey, midday up until the evening, things are closed? Like, what does that really look like? In the bigger cities, it's not as apparent, but in the day-to-day life, it is noticeable. So like if you're in a big city like Madrid or in Barcelona, those the shops are not going to close unless, you know, they're small mom and pop shops. But here in the Basque Country, for example, like everything is closed on Sundays, everything except for bakeries, maybe. So if you were to be traveling in the north up here on a weekend, Sunday, you're not going to have anything to do because everything is closed. So that's something definitely to be mindful of. The siestas, if they are closed, what are the hours that they would typically be closed if they do shut down? 
probably about two to five thirty. Mm. Yeah. So like if you're the hair salon, the seamstress, the post office, the bank. And in summer, some places will close like for the rest of the afternoon. So for example, Saturday afternoons are also not a great time to be in summer because everything closes too. So like Saturday beyond lunchtime, if it's a shop, it's probably going to be closed unless you're in a big city. I like that. I like that style a and lot. I love, I love a siesta. I will say this, like my daughter takes her nap. I take my nap, but I've always taken a siesta. Like I, I generally, <laughs> if I have the opportunity to lay down and take a nap, that's my self-care. So, and some people, they won't necessarily take like a sleep, but they will go home from work and they go home from work. They eat lunch. They maybe watch some TV for a little bit and then they go back to work or they work out. Some people might work out. I just love it because it really gives you that added free time to do stuff in your own personal life, whether it really be at a nap or run errands, work out, watch TV, you know, because I mean, you know, this, the American lifestyle, it's wake up, go to work by the time you come home from your commute, because, you know, we don't have high speed rail or any good stuff, your, your day's done. So I think that's just one of the interesting things, too, and why I love travel is you really see how other people live their lives throughout the world. And there's always pros and cons, but you can pull a little here and there. And it just makes me think like we should implement something like that here, (laughs) you know. Even the schools, for example, the lunch, you can have them come home for lunch and then go back to school. So like school ends later, like it ends around 530. And so they can go home for lunch or they can stay at school for lunch. But if you wanted your kid to come home and have lunch with you every single day, they could come home and have lunch with you every single day. So that's a pretty cool thing, too. How long is your lunch break? About an hour and a half. Oh, pretty good lunch break. Yeah. That's cool. So I'm I'm curious what Spain is like now that we're in the midst of COVID. Like if we were to take a trip this year or early next year, would we get the full experience or are things still closed down and, and maybe it's better to come later? Oh, that's a tough question because I just haven't been touring Spain. It definitely looks better than it did, say, in May, because Mm -hmm. up until May, we had a curfew. We had to be in our houses by 10 p.m. and Mm -hmm. nobody could be out again till 6 a.m. So I know everybody has had the quarantine experience. Spain is definitely, things were really closed off. So now it's starting to look like there's no curfew. There aren't masking requirements right now. I'm like, I get confused because we're all over the place. They're always changing the restrictions. So like right now, outdoors, if you can keep six feet, you don't have to wear your mask. But um, in public transportation, everybody has to be masked. So depending Mm -hmm. on how you feel about masking, if you're somebody that doesn't want to be masked, then don't visit Spain right now because masking is still pretty much required in, in, in indoor spaces for sure. And then in terms of, I mean, I know on the Mediterranean coast, things have gotten moving again, but that's mainly because you can go to the beaches. And Madrid, I know, has pushed really hard to get things to open back up again. And so you could potentially go to a place like Madrid. Barcelona has been a little bit stricter and their numbers have been a little bit higher, but you could make a trip to Madrid, I think. I see. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like that's following suit with most other places in the world. I will say the vaccination rates are really high here. People mask generally. So if you were somebody that was concerned about that, I don't feel any concern. And actually, I felt more uneasy when I was visiting the States. So... Okay. We live in San Diego. We go to Mexico quite often. We've said on the podcast, sometimes I feel safer with COVID precautions in Mexico than I do here, even in the United States. So it's funny, you know, everywhere you're describing how certain places in Spain are open, closed, masked. 
same thing, different states, different counties here in the U.S. You know, you go someplace else and it's completely different. So you never know what you're going to get in a way. One thing, too, if you are going to travel, I know for me personally, going back to the States and then flying back here, you've got to be ready to be patient and also for higher stress levels. I know that for me, flying to the States and at the time, it did require a PCR. And so like Mm -hmm. knowing where to get the PCR when if you're somebody who's never been to Spain, if there were a requirement on the going back to the US or whatever, there's a lot more things that you have to be aware of. Like I know we flew at the time in June, like mid June, and we had a marriage certificate with us for my husband, because if we were not married, he could not be traveling into the United States. We flew Delta, but there was nowhere on their site or anywhere except for the presidential proclamation that said you have to have some sort of certificate that demonstrates you're connected to this person. And so we would have not been flying from Amsterdam to the States, like they would have stopped us there. So it's just being aware that you're going to have to do your research and you're probably going to have to spend more money if you have to do any sort of testing and just being ready for, you know, you, you know how it is traveling the unknown. There's always the unknown. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So once things are a little more normal in the future and we're looking to visit, what month or time of year would you say is the best time to come? Ideally, I would say September, September or October, but I know that's not ideal with people in school or with work. That's not necessarily when you have time off, but like September or October, because in Spain, it gets really hot and there's not a lot of air conditioning, the places that you go to here. So good to know. September, October, it's still really nice weather. The weather hasn't turned yet, but it's not as hot. Those are, you know, some really nice times to be here. What are the hottest months in Spain? probably July and August. I mean, this year we've been really fortunate here in the north, but down south has been getting hit. And last year we had this crazy heat wave. But yeah, like July and August are are hot. (laughs) I've also heard May is a good time to go to Spain. Would you agree with that? I'd say it depends where you're going. Because unlike September, October, you don't run the risk necessarily of rain. Whereas Mm. in May, you may get it depending on where you're at. So yeah, yeah, May and even June, but June starts to get a little hotter. But one thing I want to bring up while I'm thinking about it, and we kind of passed it when I was asking a little bit about Spanish culture. I know the flamenco shows are very, very popular. And I don't think we've touched upon it or mentioned it. Is that truly a tourist trap that still lingers? (laughs) And do locals even attend those in everyday life? I mean, these locals that live in this apartment do not. Like, is it something that you could do? Yes. Is it definitely tourist-driven at this point? Yes. I mean, I do know, for example, I was looking at dance classes for my daughter, and one of the options is Sevillana or Flamenco, which are the two styles of dances. So, like, they do offer some things. You're not going to see it here in the north, I will tell you that. (laughs) You'll see it. I mean, if you're down south, here they do Basque dancing, so that's the big thing. But a tourist, yeah. I mean, if you want to go see it to see it, I mean, I've never been to a bullfight. I will say that. I have eaten a bull's tail, though. (laughs) I've not done running of the bulls, but I've been to Pamplona. I mean, I've not run with the bulls. I've been to running of the bulls, but not run with them. I mean, there are a lot of stereotypes about Spain and, you know, the the bullfighting does exist. If you wanted to go see it, it's there. But there are a lot of other things. Like if you're going to go to Spain, like something Spanish is, if you're going to go out, Spanish people will go out all night long. Bars do not close like that. Like you go out all night, like people will come back 
from going out and eat breakfast together. Like <laughs> that's Spain. I love that. I don't know about flamenco dancing, but that is definitely. <laughs> well, that's why I wanted to ask, because I know if you look online, especially guided tours to Spain, they'll always include like a flamenco show. And I just wanted to know if that's something that a tourist trap, and obviously it was popular in the time, that's why it exists still. But if it's not anything that locals do, is it wise to go as a tourist? Because at least my style of traveling or our style, we'd love to see certain things that are like the must do's, but we always like to do what locals do because that's a more authentic experience. And that's why I had that question specifically. Yeah, I mean, it's a definitely a fair question. Another thing too, people tend to eat paella when they're here. And a good paella, yeah, you could eat a good paella, but you're not necessarily going to eat that in Madrid. Like if you wanted to go over to maybe Valencia, they're known for paella. So if you're going to go to Valencia, then maybe eat the paella. But in Madrid, I wouldn't order paella. Like, so some of the plates that I, the dishes that I mentioned, like you could get a really great dish of octopus. Like that's going to be much more uh, local than any of the paella that you're going to get in Plaza Mayor. So I have a question. Spanish is the language of Spain, but say you don't know any Spanish whatsoever. How hard of a time will you have navigating or ordering food or communicating with people? I think if you're in the big cities, you won't have a problem. Like if you're in Madrid, you're not going to have a problem. And actually in Barcelona, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd have a problem either. And I mean, I've been in Barcelona and they might even be more willing to speak to you in English than they will be to speak to you in Castilian Spanish. Because in, in Barcelona and Catalonia, they speak Catalan, which is different than Spanish. I mean, Spain has several languages. Like it has Spanish, but it has Euskera, which is the Basque language here that we have. Gallego, which is from Galicia. They have Catalan, which is from Catalonia. I think even if they would consider Valenciano, which is from Valencia. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I mean, Spain is very, it's one country, but it's got quite the history. So like definitely the language makes the area. So going to Barcelona, if you speak English, they'll speak to you in English. And in Madrid too, there's usually a thick accent, but I think the younger generations are learning so much English that you wouldn't have a problem. So reverse of Kim's question, then, if you actually know Spanish and you go to those other regions, how close is the Spanish to those other ones that you can actually then communicate? I would say that if you're going to Spain, like in the north of Spain, they speak very clear Spanish. If you're going to the south of Spain, which tend to be higher places for, you know, tourism, it might be more challenging. Like Sevilla, Seville, they have a thick accent. Like even for me, going down and listening to somebody from Sevilla or from anywhere in Andalusia, which is the southern half of the country, their accents are thick. So like, even if you're speaking in Spanish, you might be struggling. Like I used to watch a series here. It was called Ahí Abajo. And they had someone from the North, someone from Basque Country and somebody from the South. And the jokes that they would make, and I would watch the show with subtitles in Spanish because I just could not pick up the Southern Spanish. They, and even people here joke about it because sometimes they can't understand each other. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> funny. I always thought that watching shows in Spanish with subtitles on would be a great way to learn Spanish. It definitely helps. And I mean, depending on what you're watching, if you're watching a drama, that's a much easier place to start than with a 
comedy. If you're going to watch a comedy, that's like advanced, advanced mm-hmm. Spanish because it also requires some cultural context. Like even in English, you know, like you're going right. to pick up the jokes differently when you understand the context. So it's very interesting. And that's, again, one of those things that people just don't think about. You think of one country, it's all the same, but so many things different. And you could even say that here within the United States. I'm not going to call out any states specifically, but there are certain states where we make fun of people's accents and you can't hear them. But mm-hmm. every place in the world is so different different, but also have a lot of similarities in that sense. And we just shouldn't stereotype until we go there and have to experience it. I know we said we weren't going to give you any hard hitting questions, but I do have one for you. Okay. All right. All right. I'm ready. We've got to know what the bathrooms are like in Spain. All right. Do you want, this, do you want a serious response? Oh, man. Okay. Well, I will say this. Since COVID, they have gotten much, much better. And that is saying a lot because, I mean, you've traveled the world. You've seen a lot of world bathrooms. I will say when I first got here, I remember going into the bathrooms and thinking, okay, you always have to check if there's toilet paper. And actually all Spanish women, any good Spanish woman carries Kleenex in their purse, like a little tiny package of Kleenex. And that was something that I started to see all my girlfriends here would carry this package of Kleenex. They almost expected everyone to have it. So it would be like a bonding thing. Like, oh, do you have some Kleenex? Like, do you have Kleenex? to go to the bathroom because there wasn't toilet paper. So there's a lack of toilet paper. Now there's a little bit more toilet paper. There was usually no no hand soap. Now there's always hand sanitizer. So like there is hand sanitizer. There may or may not be a full toilet seat. Like you're not going to get a seat cover anywhere in Spain. I will say that. You're not getting a seat cover. And um, yeah, if you could avoid the bathroom, I would. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, wow. I was not expecting that. I, I don't want to be so harsh. I guess I shouldn't be so <laughs> harsh. But I mean, it's not a US bathroom. I will say that. I wouldn't say it's like a truck stop bathroom in the middle of nowhere in the US. Like it's like somewhere in between. I'll definitely re- be bringing my shiwi to Spain. What is that? no I know what it is. Isn't that where you like stand up and you can? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, bring that for sure. For sure. Perfect. <laughs> Oh, well, it's funny when you started talking about the Kleenex, it reminds me specifically of when we were in China, because that was the case too, because they have public restrooms and it's just open to go in, but no toilet paper. Whereas I don't know so much of the situation in Spain, but you know, our traveling in Latin America, you have to pay to use a public restroom, but they give you the toilet paper when you go in because they have the attendant, like when you pay, right? So are the public restrooms in Spain paid? Like, is it one euro to use or are they just open public restrooms like here in the United States also? Well, I would say there's not that many public restrooms, but I will say on the flip side, any bar you go into, you don't need to pay for a thing. All you need to ask is, can I use your bathroom? And they are generally happy to let you come in, use the bathroom and leave. Like I always would feel, I think in the States, there's kind of this perception that when you go into a business, if it's you know a restaurant or whatever, like you have to buy something. That's not the case here. You can go in, you can go out. You can ask to use their bathroom, like, ¿Puedo usar el servicio? Can I use the bathroom? And then leave. Or just, even if you just said baño, they would probably be like, Okay, yeah, yeah, ahí, ahí. Like, they point you in the direction. Well, it's funny. I noticed you used servicio instead of baño originally, too. So I was going to ask, like, oh, should we use it, like, in a formal sense and say servicio? Yeah, <laughs> servicio. More, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. They would use servicio. 
So Lindsay, we talked about really big cities, Barcelona, Madrid. We talked about the beaches. Are there any really good nature areas for hiking or adventurers in Spain? Uh, yes. The Camino de Santiago, it's called The Way. It's a path that you can go on from pretty much anywhere in Spain. And it all leads back to a place called Santiago de Compostela. And it's in Galicia. And there's a cathedral there. It's, it's like a pilgrimage. And whether you're religious or not, this is something that people have done for centuries. In the past, it was much more religiously driven. But many people today do it. There are routes from everywhere in the north and from the south. And uh, my husband and I actually did it for our honeymoon. So that's something if you want to be out in nature, walking around, like you walk with your bags, there are some services that will offer like to carry your bags for you. But my husband being the military man was like, there is no way we're paying for this. Like I will carry this on my back. I'll carry all of your stuff on my back. So we did that and we did 117 kilometers, which is, I can't tell you how many miles. You've gotten used to the metric system, can't do the conversion now. I know, I love it. I love the metrics and I don't know, I run a lot. And so I think for me, because when I run, the kilometers happen so much faster than the miles. But for me, I'm like, oh, this is great. Like one, two, three, but the mile, no, no, I don't feel that way. <laughs> so uh, real quick here before we get to our last little segment of our interview here with you, what is your own personal favorite place in Spain and your favorite thing to do in Spain? Ooh, that's tough. Um, my favorite thing to do, I think for me, it's being so close to the ocean and being able to, on a daily basis, be next to it. So whether that's with running, yesterday I was next to the beach all day. Like I ran, I did 13 kilometer run and I went all along the beach. And then I went back later with my husband and my daughter and we went and did lunch. And so for me, being right on the coast and also just the bar hopping that you can do here where it's like you spend the day, you go have a drink, you sit outside in a plaza somewhere that I think is very quintessential Spain. And when you say bar hopping, are you bringing your daughter along with you? Is that yes. is that normal? Oh, yes. Yes. Kids are in tow always. Like, And that's the other thing, right. too. In the States, like, it's so weird because when we visited, I forgot. Like, You cannot have your children in a bar. And here, it's like, <laughs> it's not so much. We, they call it a bar. But in reality, it's a place that has alcohol and also serves food. So like the bar hopping too, I think when you think about wine tasting or bar hopping in the States, it's always like with the idea of a lot of consumption. Whereas here, mm -hmm. even here, they do like a small beer. Like you can get a caña, which would be like a little bit less than a pint, or you can get a zurito, which is from the Basque country. And it's like a little half beer. You might get like the half beer and then go to the next bar and get a half beer and a pincho and then another half beer. Like it's much more um, lower consumption. It's relaxed. It's a social yeah. thing without the intent of overconsumption, I guess, and partying, right? Yeah. Yes, for sure. I love that. How long are you planning to stay in Spain? Forever? No, actually, we're looking to move back to the States. We're actually oh, wow. in the process right now of completing my husband's green card. So he has been in the military now. This will be his last year of his commitment. He's a military officer. And so for us, we were looking at the future and what it looks like to live here versus in the States. My family is all in the States. Lots of my friends are back in the States. And for his career as an officer, it's moving all over the place. And for me, I always wanted like some stability. So we are actually looking at moving within the next year if all goes well with our papers. Oh, wow. Back to Boise? Yes. Excellent. Like we said earlier, we love Boise. I don't remember if we said it off air or on air, but love, love, love Boise. Fun city. 
Yeah, it's a great place. It'll definitely be a change. I think you, mm-hmm. you, you talk about culture shock. And yeah, my life has obviously changed since I've been here. And I think going back, I think nothing has changed. But like I as a person have changed, I think so it'll be a change for all of us. My husband's very excited. He's ready. <laughs> cool. As an American moving to another country, how hard was the culture shock? And how hard was it to find a job in Spain? So when I studied abroad, it was like, you know, the romance phase. It's like, you know, when you first start a relationship, it's like the honeymoon stage. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely I lived every moment of that first year. Obviously, I fell in love too. So there was just so much joy. And then in moving back, it was much more it was very real life. And so I think that's when the culture shock really hit me. And like, when there are things in the day-to-day that happen where in the States, things happen very quickly when it comes to whatever paperwork or getting errands run. And here, it's a lot of roadblocks everywhere you go. Like, I mean, even yesterday, there's an Irish bar that we were going to go to. And we got there and it's like, oh, no, they're closed for the month of August. So there's kind of these road bumps that I would hit, especially in the first year, where I would be like, why can't it just be a little bit easier? Like, there's a lot of what to me felt like a lack of consistency. Like, just be open when you say you're going to be open. And don't leave a sign like but I think over time that's definitely transitioned into a I'm so much more patient in just knowing that things don't happen when you necessarily want them to and you just have to problem solve finding work has definitely been a challenge the teaching position that I got is a very very cool program available to recent graduates it's called the cultural language ambassador program and it's with the Spanish government and the U.S. government And so they send you for a year or they can extend it for, you know, several years and you go and are sent to a public school to teach English, but it's like cultural classes where you talk about what life looks like in the U.S. So I was teaching students that would have been like junior high age through seniors in high school in a public school. And so that was a nice position. It was a part-time gig. If you're going to teach English here in Spain, that's definitely, that's the easiest way to go. But for me, I never really wanted to teach English. That was not what I got a degree in. That wasn't what I was interested in. So I had a hard time. There was a lot of pushback too. I mean, I'm in the field of communications. So I live in the Basque country. So the Basque language is something you have to have here. And so for me, it doesn't matter that I'm, you know, fluent in Spanish and English. Like I would have to know Basque in order to be in some sort of media agency or some sort of work with communications or PR. Had we been in Madrid, maybe that would have looked differently. I worked as a manager at one point at like a sporting goods store here in Europe. It's called Decathlon. And that was definitely an experience. It was a cultural (laughs) experience. It It was definitely a challenge for me. And ultimately for me, sales, I was not interested in sales at all. And so whether that would have been in Spain or the US, I think I could tell you, like, I wasn't interested in whether I sold more shirts or less. And so for me, that was not a good fit. Like, it was definitely not a good fit. But the job market here has definitely been a challenge. And it is for a lot of people, like, I don't know what the unemployment rate is right now. I think it's for people that are, you know, under the age of 40, it's in the high 20s, 20% ish. Mm. So unemployment is not just for me as an, you know, a foreigner, but for anyone from here, it's also a big challenge. And it was high well before COVID also, if I remember hearing in the news and everything like that. Yeah, it did. And so this will only exacerbate that situation, which is really sad. That is sad. Were you able to do any type of remote work for any US based companies? 
Yeah. So that's what I've leaned on. And I started working when my husband and I were doing long distance for the year and a half. I worked for a strategic communications agency based in Boise. And so through those contacts, I have been able to maintain contract work throughout my time here. And actually at this point in time, it's life, right? When you're, you, you haven't been doing as much work and then all of a sudden we're about to move back to the States and now I'm doing the most contracting work I've been doing. Like the timing is always funny, but now I'm doing much more contract work with companies based primarily in Boise. Nice, nice. So with all of our guests, we have a couple of rapid fire questions that we like to wrap up the episode with just to kind of get to know you a little bit more before we let you go. So get ready. We have three questions coming your way. First one, what is your dream vacation? Cadiz, Spain. Really? Yes. Cadiz, Southern Spain. I've seen pictures. I just want to go. And I've been harping on my husband for years. I told him we have to do it this last year. I'm going to Cadiz. So. Okay. Nice. Very interesting. You've been all around Spain and your dream vacation yet is still in Spain. And that's one place you haven't gone, huh? Yep. Either that or uh, somewhere in Austria. Austria is beautiful. I love Austria. Where would you go? Vienna? Vienna for sure and Salzburg, absolutely. And obviously, if you want to get someplace in the Alps and remote mountain towns for the scenic beauty, absolutely. Okay. All right. That's also on my list. (laughs) Next question. What is one travel confession that you have? Oh my God. Could be an embarrassing story or... I have so many. (laughs) Um, Let's see. When I was on a train, we were on a train going from Rome to Florence. And my husband, he said, like, you've got to check out the bathrooms. They're so crazy. So I went to the bathroom and it was it was like a very high tech bathroom, but the doors were automatic. It was just way too techy for me. So I got into the bathroom, but I didn't even think about how to lock the door because I assumed that the door locked on its own. So imagine I'm in the bathroom. I'm in a, I mean, women know if you're in a romper. So I'm in a romper. I go to the bathroom, all of a sudden, you know, everything is down and the door flies open to this this public bathroom. And it's somebody who was cleaning the train and I died of embarrassment. Like that to me, (laughs) that is something that I won't ever forget because I just remember him coming back up and down the, you know, the aisle in the train thinking, oh my God, this man, this man just saw me without a romper. So, you know, I mentioned the Shiwi earlier. I actually took a trip uh, to St. Louis recently and I wore a romper and it's one where you have to like undo the whole thing to get it off. So it was loose enough on the short section where I use the Shiwi every time I had to go to the bathroom and it worked out perfect. I think I need one of those. I probably would have needed one of those when when I was there. And then also when we did the Camino de Santiago, because, you know, there's not a lot of places to go to the bathroom. So I definitely should have packed one of those. All right. And last question for our listeners, what is one insider tip that you can offer to them, whether that's about Spain or just travel in general? Oh, man, I would say do as much research as you can, but know that as much as you do, there will always be a misstep and just to go with the flow as much as possible. And also, I mean, in terms of getting euros or converting dinero, uh, I was going to say, <laughs> converting <laughs> money. I know things have gotten better in Spain. So you can use your card a lot more than you used to be. So that's something to also keep in mind, not to say that you don't want to come prepared and have, you know, cash on hand, because that's always helpful in Europe and especially in Spain. But like, it's becoming much more common to use a debit and a credit card when even at the bakery. So that's great. That's a really great tip. Thank you for that. 
And those were our questions. Uh, this was a really great interview. You've got me super pumped up on Spain. I cannot wait to visit. I hope that next year I can make that happen. Um, it sounds really cool. And I was going to say let's meet up, but it sounds like we'll have to do that in Boise. Yeah. I mean, I love to get to California. So I mean, I've got a lot of girlfriends that are still in the Sacramento area. So if I ever make a trip, let us know for sure. Yeah. And if you ever make it down to San Diego, that's where we're all currently now. Come on down and visit us. Yes, for sure. San Diego is beautiful. Like Coronado, right? Like mm -hmm. it's been a while since I was down there. So I'll have to make a trip. Once you need a taste of the beach again, once you're back, exactly. come exactly. on down. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on our podcast. This was amazing information that we would not have been able to get from the internet. So really appreciate you talking with us today. Of course. Thank you guys for having me on the show. It was really nice. That was great having you, Lindsay. Thanks. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with Lindsay to learn more about Spain or the creative content and publicity work that she's doing, you can find her on Instagram. Her Instagram name is at words underscore by underscore W. And she is welcoming your messages. And thanks for tuning into this episode. Hope you guys loved learning about Spain. Hope you're just as jazzed up to take a trip as we are. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and YouTube at Travel Squad Podcast and send us in your questions of the week. If you found the information in this episode to be useful or if you thought we were just plain funny, please be sure to share it with a friend that would enjoy it too. And as always, guys, please subscribe, rate and review our podcast and tune in every Travel Tuesday for new episodes. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We have some more amazing adventures and tips in store for you. Bye. See ya. Bye.